I think that all of us have these very deep feelings of tenderness and sadness. If you don't discuss it, just eats away, eats away, eats away at you. I never talked about it with anybody. The greater damage done to me was keeping the secret. If I can be vulnerable, that will help other people be vulnerable. And it doesn't work for me to be silent. It makes me sick, literally, physically. I can't believe I'm going to tell you this story, but I'm going to tell you this story. If I could have known that you and I were alike, I would have had so much more hope. You realize you are not the only one. I think you can feel so supported just by knowing that you're not alone. From WMPG, I'm Ann Hallward, a psychiatrist in Portland, Maine, and this is Safe Space Radio the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This is our first week back after taking three months off for the summer. Over the break, I was thinking about the shows that we've done over the past eight years, nearly 300 of them. And I was thinking about some of my all-time favorites and wanting to hear them again. So I thought this fall it might be worth revisiting some of them and updating them with new thoughts and reflections on the topics we've discussed and occasionally adding a few other surprises. Kind of like a greatest hit series with bonus content. We're going to start off with a special tribute to Dr. Aaron Lazar, who died just over a year ago in July 2015. Dr. Lazar was a psychiatrist, the chancellor of UMass Medical School, and the author of six books, including my favorite, which is called On Apologies. I first met him when I was still a medical student. I heard him give a lecture on shame in the medical encounter. He was the first person to teach me about the importance of shame in the interaction between the doctor and the patient, how difficult shame makes it for patients to reveal what feels wrong with them, and how it can stand in the way of them getting the treatment they need. His work was an important inspiration for Safe Space Radio, which is all about reducing shame by discussing the feelings and experiences that we hide. He was an extraordinary teacher, and I'm so glad to have had this conversation with him. Here's my conversation with Dr. Aaron Lazar, which first aired in June 2010. Welcome to Safe Space, Aaron Lazar. Glad to be with you. I want to start out by asking you how you first got interested in the topic of shame. I was very sensitive to patients' experiences, and I saw how patients were ashamed of so many things. And I learn about this from myself because I'm a patient and everyone else is. And so I was just watching myself and thinking of the devious things we do to avoid being shamed. Like when you go to the dentist for your checkups, uh, I notice that I brush my teeth more religiously for the two weeks before I come. And if I haven't, sometimes I cancel the appointment. So I don't... so the, so the dentist says, my God, what a terrible person you've been. Yeah, and you always wonder, if I just floss for those last two weeks before the appointment, will they know? <laughs> will right, I be able to cover it up? I found out that you can, you can, in two weeks, you can make yourself look pretty good. But there's so <laughs> many things, you know, in medicine. You have to take off your clothes. And if, God forbid, you're hospitalized, they put you in a gown. How shameful it is, because... Shame has to do with losing the image that you have of yourself, things that make you proud, and here you're denuded, and then they give you names of diseases that are really sh- uh, shameful. Like what would be some examples even, of even that? Even the simplest thing like hypertension. Hypertension refers to high blood pressure. It doesn't mean that you're tense, mm. but it also has a stigma of, of being tense. In, in, in having a heart attack, you know, there's a... Uh, 
you can have an inferior infarction, which refers to a blood vessel that's called the inferior coronary artery. And but to be, I had a patient one who I said you have an inferior infarction, and he said, "No, this is a big one. I had a superior infarction." <laughs> oh. uh, but through every every uh, kind of diseases, we. Uh, shame and humiliate people. You have heart failure. What an awful thing to say to somebody. Or uh, you you are having an incompetent cervix. That's a legitimate diagnosis. Yes. Something about the anatomy of the cervix, but called incompetent. What an awful thing. Right, so the person can't help but feel like somehow it's my fault. Yeah, you have a lazy eye or a failed back, or even you're an invalid, invalid. That's invalid. So doctors really uh, don't... Don't, don't put themselves in the patient's position, but that's something that that I I, I always did, and so I try I try to make these changes to preserve the dignity of a patient because medical care has so many indignities associated with it. Yes, you know, part of it, I feel very grateful to have this chance to interview you because you uh, really opened my eyes to that. I think when I was in the first year of medical school, and it ended up having a very powerful um, effect on me all the way through because I kept thinking about that and yeah. noticing it. And how painful that was. How about having a malignancy? It's bad enough you have cancer, but... <laughs> right, malignant. It sounds so evil. That's right. Yeah, there's something evil about you. Yes. So, so actually, maybe it would be good to backtrack a little bit and define our terms. Um, you've spoken about there being four uh, self-conscious emotions, and I think it might be worth us actually taking some time to go through each one and sure. how they're different. There are four emotions that are called the emotions of self-assessment, that an emotion you feel which reflects on who you are. And one of the four is shame. And the word shame comes from schema, to cover. So to be shamed is to be uncovered. Humiliation is actually a more painful emotion because it comes from the humus, the dirt. It means to have your face pushed into the ground and to be humiliated in general, it means that it's an interpersonal event. Someone does it to you, it feels unfair, and you're lowered, and it's public. And the, with, with shame, the, the reaction to shame is to hide. But humiliation generates anger and rage. And a lot of people who commit murders or who are violent have just been humiliated. Uh, so that's that's a really a very serious emotion. And... Uh, uh, one that I really I pay a lot of attention to because it's so powerful. Uh, another one is embarrassment, which is the least serious, but to be embarrassed is to lose your composure. So when you're embarrassed, you tend to laugh it off or you tell your friend, which is a healthy way to, to deal with it. With humiliation, you just uh, can't get it off your mind. It's driving you crazy. It just You perseverate with it, and to, to shame you hide. And then guilt is, again, a more quiet one. You, how could I have done something so terrible? And that's usually a, a private emotion, too. So these are called signal emotions, which means that they signal that you have a problem. And so if you're embarrassed, what you ought to do is say, I've lost composure. How do I gain my composure instead of doing something really stupid? Uh, or to be humiliated, what you should do is nothing because your judgment is so bad. For those of you who have been humiliated, and anyone who has not been, I'm afraid to say that you're a liar. Because <laughs> we, <laughs> Either that or they repressed it because it's such a horrible experience. It's horrible. Yes. Humiliation is the cause of wars. 
In fact, people about five, 5th century BC, someone who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian Wars said that the three causes of war are greed, fear, and loss of honor. And loss of honor is what humiliation is all about. Yes, I mean, I remember being told in high school that World War II in some ways was the result of Germany being humiliated after World War One. That's common historical knowledge that the Versailles Treaty was so cruel that they had to get even. And so Hitler rose to power because Hitler was a humiliated person, and now he was going to lead and, and, and get re- redeemed by it. Yeah, yeah. It's humiliation is a dangerous, dangerous emotion, and you should never humiliate someone. And when you do and you can't help it, uh, you can... Uh, a good apology can can help it. And if it happens to yourself, as I said, don't do anything because you're going to do something really dumb. If you write a letter, don't Don't, <laughs> don't send it. it. Yes, well, I actually want to slow down because you have a really great, in your book on apology, you write about kind of the sequence of events that tends to happen to a person when they feel humiliated. And yeah. it, it seems really worth walking through that. You talk in the beginning about being absolutely blindsided. Yeah, and when, I wondered if you could just sort of talk us through the process. Yeah, when you're humiliated, the first thing that happens is you're kind of numb. You're, you're kind of not sure what's going on. And then and the other thing, and this happens to almost everybody, you start to perseverate that as you can't get it off your mind. It kind of Somebody said it's like they're living in my mind rent-free. I know I've been humiliated if I keep rehearsing better and better comebacks in my yes. mind, like, oh, I wish I'd said that, or, and I keep refining that comeback to make it even more counter-humiliating. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, someone, someone very important in, in the organization I was in humiliated me and everybody else, and he would uh, say things like, oh, psychiatry, I don't believe in psychiatry, and he, he would do that in front of many people, and here I was in charge of the department, and and then I realized that one of the things that, that he does is he catches me off guard. See, so there are some people, we each have a relative or a friend who's what I call a chronic humiliator. They're always putting it down, and the only way to, to undo it is to have the answer ready in advance, ah. because you're not ready. What, so, what answer did you have in, in advance for oh, the next Oh, so time? what I did, this was, this was one of the high points of my career. <laughs> I want to hear it. So I walked into his office, and there were about 20 other people there. And he says, oh, here comes my psychiatrist. I don't believe it. And, and I said, how long have you felt this way? <laughs> he, he turned red. He totally, totally unraveled. And he, he says, what do you want me to do, lie down? I said, you can lie anywhere you want. Uh, and he never did it again. I see. So that was your effective way of getting to stop. Yeah, no, you don't want to overdo it if I said, you know, you blank, blank, blank with all kind of curse words. It would look like I was out of control, but uh, but if you keep your cool, you can have something measured in, in advance. Yeah, that's very helpful. But the other thing to do is don't do anything because you're going to do the wrong thing. So the first thing is you feel blindsided. Right. The second thing is you notice yourself perseverating and sort of rehearsing comebacks and just going over and over right. it in your mind. And then, then you start happens? thinking about revenge. Yeah. And then you start, you're, you're so preoccupied that you... Uh, forget things. You uh, lose your keys, or you, you take the wrong turn on the highway because your mind your mind is struggling to keep yourself sane, so to speak. You know, and uh, yes. and then it goes away, but it doesn't go away. It it, it becomes a, a a grudge, a revenge, almost like waiting for your chance to get even. So that takes a lot of energy out of you. Yes, you've also said that apology is finally the only way to heal a humiliation. Well, the apology on the part of the person who humiliated you. 
But what if that's not forthcoming? Because, of course, it often isn't. If it's not forthcoming, you have to, uh, <laughs> you kind of swallow it and don't do anything stupid. But I found in my own self, if somebody said, you'll never do that, it can't work, that motivates me, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them. So they could be constructive things, too. So a lot of constructive things I did in my professional career was sort of, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to show them that I could really uh, pull, pull this off and... Uh, I, I had, see. So you I, channeled it. You sort of channeled it into fuel for yourself. That's right. I, there's a fascinating story that I recently had. There was somebody, a very famous psychiatrist, uh, who was coming to visit our school for three days, but he wouldn't come unless he would have an hour appointment with me. And I knew who he was. And, and the reason that he wanted to speak with me is because I humiliated him in 1964. And now he came back and he said, I want to talk to you. He says, do you remember what you did now? What I did, I had to do. I had to take away a patient that he was seeing because he wasn't handling the patient well. But I didn't realize how devastating it was. So I wasn't, I was kind when I said it, but I didn't do enough follow-up. And he, he he's telling me about this and he says, do you remember that? I said, I remember all of it. And then he said, uh, I decided that someday I was going to become famous and I was going to come back and show you, and here I am. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And he gave me a gift. He had written a book recently, and he, he brought a book, and he said, to my best teacher. Ah, <laughs> uh, And so in that moment, did you apologize to him? Yeah, I apologized by saying, you know, I, what I did was the right thing, and I'm glad that you felt that I did it delicately, but I, I didn't understand how much it would hurt and how long it would last and that I should have been in ongoing dialogue with you, and I've learned that since, and so that was the apology. Mm. That's a great story, because part of what it shows is that when you feel humiliated, it's very hard to let go of it. You hold on to it for decades. Yeah. It, you know, the other thing to keep in mind is the, the synonyms for humiliation. Now, if you ask me what's a, a common synonym for shame, I would say, oh, I had egg on my face. Well, that's not a terrible thing, you know. But how about humiliation? I was thrown under a bus where I was nailed to the cross. Uh, I was decimated. I was stabbed in the back. I was kicked in the groin. I have a hundred of these things I collected, a hundred synonyms, and they're all destructive. And it shows how destructive. So it's, it's murder, not murder of your body, but murder of yourself. And that's why you think about it and you're struggling with it because it's an attack on your very soul. So... Don't humiliate people, and when you are humiliated, uh, realize that you're not dead and that you really can, can make a comeback on it. Mm. But it's an extraordinary, extraordinary emotion that people don't like to even talk about. I want to ask you, you know, you define shame as when you lose the image you have of yourself. Yeah, you, you fail to live up to, to your, your, your image, yes. Yes, and, but what if the image you have of yourself is falsely unattainable? I mean, what if... If, for instance, a person comes to have sh- feel shame about having needs at all, something that really isn't inherently shameful, but the person's image of themselves is really an unrealistic one, as if a person, as if a grown-up isn't supposed to have any vulnerability or isn't supposed to have needs. Well, they come and see a psychiatrist like you and me, and, 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 and help, help help see the irrationality of the image that you you convince somebody, hopefully. 
by your interviewing that you are a decent, normal person. Where do you get these peculiar ideas about yourself? And I said, well, my mother told me this yeah, and that. Right. The thing is, it's not so peculiar, right? I mean, that's so common. Oh, yeah. That people try to live up to an image of themselves that's really unattainable, and therefore they feel terrible. They feel ashamed in an almost chronic way. Yeah, and so I guess when you have parents who are too demanding and expect of you things that are way beyond your reach, that's really unfair, and you're feeling ashamed all the time. Yes, it feels like that is all too common, sadly. Yeah, I'm sure you see it a lot in your practice. Yes, I do. You, But then you also say that somehow that too little shame is a problem. I wondered if you could explain that. Oh, to be shameless. What a terrible thing. You're a criminal. <laughs> you have no no morality about anything, so to to be shameless is to is to have something really missing. You teach your children, oh, mommy is so proud of you, and, and, uh, or mommy is disappointed that you broke the toy. You should break someone's toy. And so you, you hopefully create a reasonable image. And I don't know what the origin of a psychopath is, someone who just doesn't care and goes around shooting people and robbing banks, but they're shameless. I see. So shame can have a kind of socializing function where it helps us to behave a more considerate way, perhaps. Yeah, I don't see too many good things about humiliation, but I think shame has a lot of very uh, positive things. Uh, is a quote I have from someone. To feel shame is to know there's a better side of ourselves. It's the sin qua non of humanity. Mm. Uh, and then I, the other thing I, I think about, shame is like blood pressure. If it's too high, it's bad. If, it's, you know, if you're ashamed of everything, it's yes. bad. If you're ashamed of nothing, it's bad. But it's like your blood pressure right in the middle. It's just... Uh, it's just the right just amount. Right. So we we don't have much time left, but I want to end in talking just a little bit about apology because I know your work on shame uh, really dovetails beautifully with apology. And yeah. I want to ask, you know, I'm really interested in what makes apologies work, but also what makes people avoid apologizing. And And I wondered if you could comment about the relationship between shame and apology and whether people feel... Avoid apologizing because they feel ashamed to do so. Yeah, an honest, genuine apology is one of the most profound things that could happen between two humans because it's, it's a healing of a wound. And and this is part, this goes back, you know, primates apologize. They After they have a fight, they'll stroke the other person. And mm-hmm. preliterate human beings apologize and atonement in, uh, and repentance and in all the great religions, apologies are built into it. So this is this is not a new phenomena, but to apologize is the most extraordinary healing thing when it when it's done right. And it's just to make it simple in short time, if I humiliated somebody, supposing I yelled at a student and I said, "What a stupid idea that was," and the student left out of the room and didn't want to come back. The only way that I could, I never never did this, but the only way I could apologize was to go to the full class where I humiliated him and said, what I did was just stupid. It was insensitive. I don't know what got into me, but this is a wonderful student and whatever. So what you're doing in the, and in the apology, you're restoring it. You're undoing it. You're saying, it wasn't him, it was me. And so I sacrifice, in a way, some of my own self-esteem, uh, and hopefully I'm strong enough to do it. And that just takes the pus out of the wound, and it's just remarkable. And, and people, all kind of wonderful things happen between two people when someone can apologize genuinely. Now, most apologies are terrible apologies. For instance, I'm sorry if you were upset. Right. 
that means that I don't even believe anything happened. Like it's like if you're so sensitive that it bothered you, I'm sorry. Are you happy now? Right. Or, it's all your fault, and the if suggests right. it might not even. Have or I'm sorry for whatever I may have done. I mean, you don't know what you did. So in an apology, it's a complex thing, and you're just going to have to read the book. But uh, you have to acknowledge what the offense was. And yes, you have, you have a whole chapter on acknowledgement that felt so powerful. So yeah. often what the offended party wants is just to feel acknowledged. To acknowledge that and to acknowledge that it was bad and that yes. it was wrong. and that, yeah, and uh, So it's simple, but it's so complicated because you have to humble yourself to do it. Yes, I mean, that's, you know, when, when I was preparing for this interview, I was doing an informal straw poll of my friends about whether they liked apologizing or not and what made them do it, what made them avoid it. And a number of them did say that it did feel like there was some shame involved in mm. owning their respond, their failings. Yeah. And um, how hard it, that was for some people to do. And, and for others, it was so welcome. It was such a relief. Yeah, one thing for parents, if you apologize genuinely to your kid when you make a mistake, you're teaching them how to apologize. That feels so helpful because so often I see parents forcing their kids to apologize. Say you're sorry, say you're sorry. Yes, and the kid is, you know, absolutely refusing. It's public, so now they're feeling humiliated, they're pressured. And then eventually the kid will cave because they're being threatened. And, and they'll, they'll say, say some completely insincere apology. Sorry. Yeah, and then and then it, the parent acts as if something really good has happened, and everyone moves on. And I think, yeah. what was learned here that that it, you know this insincere apology is actually means something, and that forcing yourself to do it is yeah. actually it's very tricky because as parents we want our children to learn to apologize. Yeah. Well, well, one of the ideas I have would be to say, "Oh my, how do you think Johnny feels?" And your your, your, your child says, "Oh." I think he's really unhappy. And I said, gee, can you do anything to make him feel better? I don't know. Well, what about you You broke his toy. Maybe you, maybe you should give him your toy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How I, long has I, it I been since you had grand- a young child, Aaron? <laughs> I, have, I have 11 grandchildren, so I've taken well, a couple to be my experiment to, to, to work on apologies with them. <laughs> Aaron, it's wonderful to talk to you. We are going to have to stop. Thank you so much for the really pioneering work that you've been doing. On my Shane. pleasure. It's been a wonderful influence for me personally and professionally. I'm grateful to you. Thank you very much. I've been talking to Dr. Aaron Lazar, the author of the book on apology and also really path-breaking article, Shame in the Medical Encounter. I'm in the studio right now with Sarah Powers, a fourth-year medical student at Harvard. I want to ask you, how much are they teaching you about shame? So we actually spend a lot of time learning about the ways that we can cause shame in the ways that we physically expose patients. When we practice our physical exams, we learn how to drape patients appropriately. We talk a lot about how having them sitting naked in an examining room can cause shame. But that's really the extent of it. What about thinking about how shameful it might feel for someone to come and talk about a problem with alcohol, say, or a sexual difficulty? I think that we definitely practice how to have difficult conversations with patients on topics like drug use or sexuality or death. And we learn how to make them feel comfortable speaking about these things with us. 
But I don't think we necessarily focus on the way that these discussions can cause a patient to feel shameful. It's not necessarily the the conversation that we're having with our professors. We're more trying to figure out how we can you know, get information from a patient, not necessarily thinking about how they might be feeling. So interesting, isn't it? Because part of what I learned from Aaron Lazar is that shame is actually one of the biggest obstacles to getting all the information that we need. In fact, that shame almost always leads us to want to hide. And so we either avoid the doctor or we don't really tell them. Like I remember being taught in medical school to ask questions about alcohol use in a very specific way because everybody minimizes, everybody answers less than what they actually drink. Do you feel like there's an appreciation now for how much shame actually interferes with gathering information? You know, I've definitely seen how it can have that effect. Even I remember in a primary care clinic that I was working in, a patient told me flat out that he had not come to several appointments because he was embarrassed that he had not lost the weight that his primary care doctor had wanted him to lose. And I think, unfortunately, instead of addressing why he felt that way and why he felt like he couldn't come into the doctor, we sort of just moved on to, you know, when he would come in next and sort of the next steps in his care. And we didn't take the time to really talk about why he was feeling that shame and why that shame was preventing him from getting the care that he needed. So I think that we really don't talk about it enough and we don't address the ways that it affects our patients, which it obviously does. It's interesting because I might even take it one step further that the shame there was not only getting in the way of his coming to the doctor and getting care, but that the shame probably was contributing so much to his own struggle Mm -hmm. with his body and his weight. So I was really lucky in that I went to hear Dr. Lazar speak when I was a first-year medical student. And so my whole medical school experience in some ways was shaped or like I looked through that lens in a new way. And his article, Shame in the Medical Encounter, was pivotal in my thinking because he started looking at the ways that doctors use language that's shaming, like incompetent cervix or heart failure. And um, so I asked you to read it, and I'm curious to ask you how... How is it affecting how you're thinking about yourself as a doctor? Well, so many of the points that Dr. Lazar makes in his essay ring true. You know, there are so many times when we refer to patients by their disease. So not only do we give them these shame-inducing diagnoses, but we actually refer to them in that way. What's an example? So we very commonly will hear, you know, the diabetic in, you know, room X or the schizophrenic, um, instead of saying the patient with diabetes or schizophrenia. And that is something that you don't necessarily say in front of a patient, but when you're talking with colleagues, I hear it all the time. And as a medical student, I'm always trying to sort of absorb everything around me and trying to seem like the senior doctors and residents that I work with. And so it's so easy just to take on this language and not even think twice about what it actually means. That makes so much sense because it's an apprenticeship model. So you're there like following, trying to fit in, trying to see how you're supposed to do it, model yourself. Right. And that way the culture gets perpetuated Mm -hmm. on and on. Yeah. It's interesting because we think of shame as, as something that feels like it's about a global sense of self. So if you're defining someone by their disease, you can see how that alone is shaming. So now that you've heard Dr. Lazar and you've read his work, how do you want to do it differently? 
Well, one thing that Dr. Lazar mentions in his essay is that really the way that we can deal with this knowledge of the fact that we do cause shame in our patients during our medical encounters is that we simply acknowledge that fact with them. When we give them one of these diagnoses like heart failure um, or incompetent cervix, we take the time to talk with them about what that actually means. That yes, these are terms that we use, they are not ideal, and they cause certain feelings in patients. And the physician and the patient together can acknowledge that. Um, I think that that's what I took from his essay and the best way to move forward. It's amazing how powerful acknowledgement is. Mm -hmm. Sarah Powers, thank you so much for coming into the studio and talking with me today. Thanks so much, Anne. I feel like we're really lucky that you've chosen to go into psychiatry. Thanks. If you like the show and want to hear more about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, you can subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. You can also listen to all of our past episodes. And please leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor.